Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Um, yeah, had a nice little retreat break, which I'm going to say just a tiny bit about retreat principle. And remember, the, as Andy was saying, the spirit of these gatherings is definitely different from my usual kind of prepared presentation thing where I basically would just have a few spontaneous ideas uh, based on auspicious coincidence that I'll run with for just a few minutes just to launch things. And then the bulk of what we're going to do is uh, just a, kind of an open forum conversation around things. But I did want to just mention something about my dear friend, Joseph, who so kindly stepped in last week to help. <clears throat> He's a very humble guy. You probably don't realize how capable he is. Really, I'm not, I'm not being like patronizing here to him. He's a PhD psychologist, a graduate of the three-year retreat, um, author of seven books. And I originally became very impressed with this guy woof, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, when Joe and I were at the inaugural week, month, actually, month. It was a month-long training at Gampo Abbey um, with uh, Trungpa Rinpoche and Pulim Rinpoche, where we launched fundamentally what has become now this amazing tradition in the Nalanda Bodhi community. That's, that's uh, Pulim Rinpoche's incredible community, which is like a it's kind of Shadra based. Shadra is like monastic college type thing. And I remember being really impressed with Joseph because we were engaging in some pretty sophisticated debate dialectic type things, um, which re really required a, a, quite a precision of mind, kind of, you know, attorney level thinking. And uh, Joseph kind of uh, blew us away because he was, he was just so incisive and clear. And so I was tremendously grateful for my friend to step in and help me out as I was um, taking a little bit of a break. So now I'm good for another 100 hours <laughs> of presentation. Hopefully there wasn't that much coming up, but I definitely needed a, a little um, getaway. So I, I, I wanted to say just a couple of things, housekeeping things. We did launch um, this Lucid Dreaming, Foundations of Lucid Dreaming course quite recently, which is, uh, a, I think, a fairly comprehensive, rigorous kind of introduction to the art of the nocturnal practices. And the reason I toss this out to this community is, is this course, if, if people are, have taken a number of my courses on lucid dreaming, if they've read my book, um, this course may not give them a ton of new information, um, even though there is definitely some new material there that will be forthcoming in the two books that are coming out this summer. But I just wanted to mention that's out there um, and to contextualize it, if you're already pretty seasoned at this stuff, this course may not be for you, um, but it's, I think, a really solid introduction to this sort of thing. And we also have a couple of other things coming up. Um, there's been a lot of interest in this um, anxiety and fear in an uncertain world program that I recently did. So I'm going to uh, re-record that, repackage it um, on our own platform because uh, there's a lot, <laughs> there's, have you noticed? There is a lot of anxiety and fear, and, and really, I'm going to throw in a little bit of anger as well that's really just running rampant. So I think understanding some of the wisdom principles around these untoward states of mind <clears throat> is uh, helpful. So that's going to be coming up as well. Um, but Joseph said something last. I, did, I lis listened to part of the, his riff, which I thought was really great. Um, he, he does have this really cool thing about you know the Swiss analogy, the Swiss cheese analogy, you know, how... Um, this really applies on a, a lot of levels that, that as one engages in spiritual practice, um, things become a little bit more porous. You, you start to realize a number of things. One is the kind of gappy nature 
the, uh, the so-called holy, H-O-L-E-Y, nature of your mind and also of the, of the world at large, which is deeply connected to Bartle principles because Bartles are just gaps. And you know, Bartles in everyday life means there are these gaps everywhere. And so what happens with the path, in addition to what Joe was talking about last week, is that as, as we start to practice more and more and things slow down, and almost like this, you know, just this incredible spinning velocity that, uh, of the mind that keeps the illusion that we somehow have it all together, <laughs> that uh, we know what we're doing, we know what the world is. Um, this, this speed that creates the fallacious sense of certainty when we start to slow down, that um, spinning wheel starts to come undone and, and then you know, our life becomes more open, porous. And I like to use the word translucent. So what I've definitely experienced in many years of doing this sort of stuff is, is that one becomes kind of increasing, increasingly porous or translucent even to oneself. And so, what this means is that the, the deeper kind of radiant, almost uh, thermonuclear power of your nature, the kind of the divinity within, the great eastern sun within, whatever countless, one of the countless metaphors you want to use, that streaming light that, you know, this is a 24-7 affair, 24-7-11 type affair. This is a, a quality of heart-mind, a luminous quality that never turns off. It is always shining. Um, and literally in the minds of the completely awakened ones, you know, this type of 24-7 um, type awareness literally results in 24-7 consciousness. One, the body may lay down and repose, but the mind actually never, never turns off. I shouldn't say the mind, the awakened mind never turns off. It's basically allowed to shine all the time. And so um, this is a really, the Swiss cheese analogy goes pretty deep because we open to ourselves, we become more translucent to ourselves. The membrane between the unconscious and the unconscious mind starts to become more tenuous and eventually that disappears. There is no unconscious mind in the minds of the awakened ones. And so that, that uh, kind of membrane starts to dissolve. And often when that first starts to come loose, the superficial parts of the unconscious mind can release a lot of, um, unpleasant types of experiences because there's a lot of things that we refuse in our lives. I kind of double play on the word. Um, the things that we refuse in life are thrown into the refuse heap of the unconscious mind, right? So out of sight is not out of mind. Out of sight is into the unconscious mind. And so when you become more porous, initially a lot of this crap comes up. And this is why, again, the master of the one-liner, Trungpa Rinpoche once said, fantastic one-liner. Meditation isn't a sedative, it's a laxative. So initially all this crap comes up, but eventually that purifies. That, that eventually just purifies if you learn how to relate to it properly. And then the super unconscious mind, or you could say the super conscious mind, deeper even than Jung's collective unconscious mind, then that starts to shine through. And this, you start to notice this in your experience as well. You, you start to notice increased moments of, of uh, auspicious coincidence, synchronicities, um, radiance, you know, more and more kind of magical things start to happen as this kind of radiant power within you starts to radiate and shine forth. And, and you can quite literally 
feel that in the presence of others who have really done this kind of work to open to themselves, they become radiant. They become, um, in, a, in Shambhala Buddhist language, it's called um, authentic presence or ziji. They, one time, they just, you just radiate this natural luminosity that you can feel in beings like His Holiness the Dalai Lama or the great spiritual masters from any tradition. They just start to shine because they're, they're so translucent and porous to themselves that that light not only illuminates themselves, but then it, it serves to shine and illuminate all others. Um, and so what else did I want to say today? I wanted to talk just super briefly about retreat and retreat, retreat principle, because that's a little bit of what I did uh, last week when I went offline. And, and this has, um, immediate applicability to lucidity and lucidity tenets, because when we're, if we're framing this in the concept of a, a lucid dream and a non-lucid dream, um, most, uh, well, one of the main reasons we're not lucid to the contents of our dreams, or for that matter, the contents of our mind, is because we're too, we're too close to them, we're too involved. We, we, we just completely get lost entrapped in the display of the mind, whether it's a thought, a fantasy, or in the nocturnal arena, a dream. And so what takes place in a moment of lucidity when you're dreaming, there's a type of instantaneous retreat that takes place, like on the spot. You're in the dream, and all of a sudden, for whatever reason, a dream sign or something will happen that will, will actually click you in to the fact that, hey, this is just a dream. That's an instant type of retreat. All of a sudden, ping you're stepping back a little bit and um, developing a, a kind of a witness awareness where the dream's still there, but you're just no longer so excessively involved with it. Um, you're actually seeing it in a different light. I'm gonna try something here, hold on. I'm just messing with my camera here. Um, and so this, this retreat principle applies both you know, in kind of longer, obvious kind of traditional retreats. I'm a huge fan of that sort of practice. I still do it regularly. I go into retreat as best I can every year. But I find just as importantly are these moment-to-moment -moment flashes of on-the-spot retreat, one of which we were um, engaging in the jog uh, last week, augmented it with his approach, um, you know, the one breath meditation. So lest you think we forgot that, Let's pause and do a one breath, not just meditation session, let's go into retreat for one breath. Okay, here we go, we can do it. So for those of you who may be new to this, this comes from the Mahamudra tradition. I learned this from my teacher, Kempel Tsiltram Gyamsa Rinpoche, where literally for the duration of one inhalation and one exhalation, you simply pause, stop, or as Joe was saying last week, drop, drop into your body, and simply just be fully present, aware, awake, just for the duration of one breath. So let's go into immediate retreat for one breath. Okay, here we go. Or here we don't go. That's it. I love it. And so the, this, the, 
great gift of these types of um, what I playfully refer to as emergency meditations or emergency retreats is you can do this anywhere, anytime on the spot. And I think this is super important because one of the near enemies of retreat is also a near enemy of kind of daily formal practice in your meditation shrine room, which is all, I mean, my shrine room is, this is my study, but I have a shrine room upstairs that's really quite beautiful, I think. I mean, I've got spectacular tankas everywhere and this beautiful, pristine shrine and all these kind of things. And, and as, as magical as that is, um, a near enemy of, of that type of situation or even longer retreat is somehow thinking that I can only do my meditation if I have enough time to get going, if I've got these special circumstances. And, and, and again, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm, I, I'm a huge fan of all these sorts of things, but there are shadow elements everywhere. And if we make our, if we limit our meditation, our, uh, our minds to longer meditation sessions and even more formally we do 45 minute or hour sessions every day, then that can act as a bit of a trap. Um, we think like, oh, I can only maintain kind of meditative qualities when I have these kind of um, environmental situations. And, you know, life just doesn't work that way, right? And the whole point of meditation, meditation is not the final point in the spiritual traditions. Enlightened activity, engaging in the world with an open heart, with awakened wisdom and compassion, that's the final point. And so therefore, we want to use our meditation, but in a certain sense, don't let our meditation misuse us, thinking that, oh, I can only do it under X, Y, and Z conditions. Um, we want to develop what I playfully recall, you know, call this kind of industrial strength meditation, industrial strength mind, where you can bring these qualities um, with you. You know, it's like putting the meditation cushion in your back pocket. Wherever you go, there it is. And so in that sense, you never, as we say in, in the spiritual business, you know, you never lose your seat because you're taking it with you in a certain sense. And so therefore, um, these retreat principles, both in the more traditional durational ways, longer duration, and then really these, these kind of flashing opening um, kind of interruptions of the uh, samsaric narrative or trajectory moment to moment are, are spectacularly helpful. Um, and as they say in, in many of the highest teachings, like in, in Tibetan Buddhism, this would be like Mahamudra and Dzogchen, short sessions repeated frequently, short sessions repeated frequently. Literally sometimes not even as long, I mean, as, a, as one breath. We're talking as short as just flash, which really just means open, open. And the more I do this stuff, um, the more I travel this path, the more I find myself engaging in these kind of really momentary, instantaneous type practices. Instant meditation. We can start marketing that. You know, everything's instant these days. But instant doesn't mean speed in this regard, right? It just means really, in, in a certain sense, interrupting speed. Um, and so with that as my initial riff, um, because I haven't seen you all in a couple of weeks. Well, actually I did have one thing else, one more other thing, one thing else, one more thing to say here. Um, there, there were some sparky uh, comments and everything from last week, which is, which is great. You know, we, we don't want spiritual practice to be kind of homogenized and vanilla. Um, you know, these kind of so-called challenging situations 
are definitely, everything is definitely welcome on the path. But what I was uh, flashing on when I was listening to some of um, the webinar, the session from last week, connects deeply to something that I think is not taught enough, uh, at least in the Buddhist tradition. And this is a larger kind of engagement of the term samskara. Um, samskara is, is a hugely important term in both Hindu and in general Indic thought. You'll find it a lot in uh, Kashmir Shaivism and Nandu Shaiva Tantra, where it has a slightly different meaning or it can be rendered in a slightly different way than the way the Buddhists use it. So the word itself, samskara, it's, it's again, it's one of these multivalent or uh, polysemous terms that literally has about 25 definitions. Um, conditioning, um, uh, karmic triggers, um, karmic formations. For those of you who are students of Buddhism, the samskaras uh, constitute the entirety of the second nidana or the fourth skanda. So it's a massively important term in, in the Buddhist tradition. In the Hindu schools, um, samskara is used as a, a term somewhat associated with unfinished energy patterns or um, psychic cysts or conditioning patterns. And, and the way this applies here is in this usage, samskaras are super interesting and they apply completely to what's happening with the difficult situations that we're seeing in the world today. And that is that whenever uh, experience is inappropriately related to or undigested, and usually this relates to unwanted experience, um, what happens is if the energy of the experience isn't fully registered, if it isn't fully lived, if it fully isn't cremated, um, this, is, this alludes to a beautiful reference of Suzuki Roshi where he said, I think it was in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, you know, we should all be good bonfires. We shouldn't be smoky fires. Um, and so what he means by that is, is really, and this is my riff, we really should, we're invited to cremate our experience as we live it, live it fully so that it doesn't leave any traces. It doesn't leave these samskaras <clears throat> because samskaras then become karmic triggers. And so if we have undigested, unprocessed experience, which is usually unwanted, it resides, it literally ties us up into subtle knots in the subtle body system. So there's a subtle body correlation here. But these kind of psychic un, um, abscesses, these undigested, unprocessed energy patterns then fester unconsciously and therefore exert a monumental influence on so-called conscious lives. And one way to register a samskara is reactivity. When something um, you hear something you experience just ignites a kind of instantaneous firestorm of reactivity. Almost always that denotes that you're, you, you've activated a samskara because what happens is not only is the experience as it's happening somewhat triggersome, um, but it's actually because it's resonant with something that wasn't previously fully experienced, digest, metabolized, processed, and therefore released, um, what happens is not only are you experiencing the present situation with some difficulty, but you're bringing this enormous baggage, this, this history that really massively colors the current situation. And so, in fact, the traditions say most of what we're reacting to is actually our past history. We're actually not seeing the present moment fully. 
because there's so much baggage, there's so much unprocessed samskaric activity going on there, we're so reactive to it, that basically the, the, the particular event just acts as a trigger to release this massive historical freight train. And so this is super helpful to understand. Um, in fact, here's a, another way to look at this. Maybe we can talk about this because this is a really important topic not only in spiritual traditions, but also in the psychological arenas. And one, one popular maxim here that I'm thinking of that ties this into things like psychological projection, this is definitely connected to projection, transference, counter-transference and the like. And see if this works for you. Um, Ken Wilber writes about this, David Loy writes about this. And when I heard it, I said, man, this is just spot on. And so the following, this is the maxim. This is another one of these on the spot emergency type contemplations that I think can really bring about a sense of humility and openness. And so the maxim is the following and see, just see if it works for you. If something affects you more than it informs you, you're probably dealing with a projection or in this larger spiritual sense, you're working with a, a, a samskara. A samskara has been triggered and so we really want to understand these principles because um, the spiritual path is largely about getting rid of all our karmic residue. And samskaras are karmic triggers. Whatever, wherever there's samskara, there is karma. Wherever there's karma, there's you know, moment to moment and life to life rebirth, if you believe in that sort of thing. So to attain awakening psychologically and spiritually, one way or the other means bringing all these samskaras, unconscious processes, into the light of consciousness, to relate to them instead of from them. Um, and otherwise what happens, what, you know, our habits decide for us, our karma decides for us, our samskaras decide for us. And this topic goes so far that coming back to the Buddhist perspective here, when we die, I, this is my riff on this, when we die, we will meet our maker and these be them. The samskaras are our makers. They are what make us moment to moment to moment. In, in the Buddhist iconography, it's depicted as a potter, the second nidana, that basically is constantly spinning and throwing things into form. So this notion of samskara is a monumental topic in, the, in, the, in Buddhist traditions. And it has tremendous applicability right now. One way immediate, immediate applies now is that if we are um, finding it really difficult to stay what's happening, and of course it is difficult. That's why arming ourselves with these teachings can be so helpful. If we don't devour our experience, the, the word in Sanskrit here is alamgrasa. If we don't devour our experience as we live it, even now with everything that's happening, well, guess what happens? you're planting more samskaras. And so it takes a lot of courage um, armed by these views and the practices that support them to stay in these blast furnace situations of life. You know, where, where when things get really difficult, that's when spiritual warriors really step up because they're willing to step into the blast furnaces of life because they understand the, the mechanisms of the whole kind of display. So. Um, I just wanted to throw that into the mix. It's a, as you might suspect, um, somewhat characteristically, this in itself is a triggering topic, right? <laughs> it's fantastic. This topic on triggers is, is also a really triggering topic. Um, and so maybe I'm, I'm opening up a hornet's nest here or a Pandora's box, but, but so be it. You know, I think if we can't bring 
really gritty, difficult topics onto the spiritual path of what value is our spirituality? How relevant and applicable is Buddhism in this day and age if this or any other wisdom tradition doesn't have the armamentarium to bring something to, uh, to the table, which right now is a really difficult table with a lot of unwanted guests. And so if we, if we can't use these wisdom traditions to get into the dirt and to get into the mix and really work with these difficult, challenging situations, you know, then we just have this spiritual bypass, pleasant little feel gauge, feel, feel um, good new age meditation and path that, that really fundamentally becomes more and more irrelevant. You might as well just take a sedative or like what I do is I just drink my margarita and get into my truck, right? <laughs> so I wanted to throw this into the mix just, just to say that we should not be afraid of getting into the mix. And um, really, again, that's the point. How can we bring our meditation? Meditation is not the point. The point is enlightened activism. The point is enlightened activity. How could we really do that without just paying lip service to that and really bring a, a quality of openness, paying attention to how it is that we're triggered, how it is that we're adversely affected. When something, you hear something and there's just this flashpoint, what's going on there? Why is it so triggering? Um, how can I take responsibility for that? How can I work to actually purify that? Because otherwise these triggers literally can press triggers. They lead to war, they lead to violence, they lead to everything. These undigested samskaras um, are really, um, in a very large part, if we don't relate to them, we relate from them. And these makers continue to make us, and they usually make us in a way that is not so conducive to um, benefiting self and other. So anyway, that's my longer than normal riff, uh, because I missed you all so much, I just got inspired to, to just run with this a little bit. So if you like, now's the time to open it up. Um, offerings, questions, that doesn't have to be just questions. There's some real, you know, quite a number of people are listening to this, which is great, which means we have hundreds and hundreds of years of collective wisdom amongst us. And so if someone wants to share something, um, now's the time to do it, because that's really the essence of what we do with these Thursday gatherings, is just get together and kind of uh, talk around the campfire, so to speak. So please. All right, so let's start off with a written question. This is from the nightclub community, and it was a comment from the Week 10 Hangout. It says, um, I enjoyed Andrew's riff on states and structures of consciousness, vertical and horizontal development, and waking up to growing up. Can Andrew please explain what structures of consciousness really means? I understand states of consciousness, such as dream, sleep, waking, meditative experiences, et cetera. I don't follow what is the difference with respect to structures of consciousness. Yeah, that's, this is a, a really big and important topic. Oh, uh, geez. Yeah, so structures, there's, uh, structures of consciousness really, um, one way to talk about this is, this is a really, so many ways to talk about it. Um, first of all, let me say this. Structures of consciousness were, were fundamentally unearthed or discovered principally in the West, you know, maybe some hundred plus years ago, using uh, data collection and investigation uh, methodologies that were completely unknown to the East, which is why the East never really discovered them, because the East just, you know, it's like... Uh, 
Heisenberg once said about science, the great physicist, he said, you know, what we discover in science is not reality itself, but reality as it's revealed through our methods of investigation. This is an astounding statement. It basically means that the, the types of questions that you ask are super important, um, you know, which is why the Buddha was really more interested in asking right questions than providing right answers. Questions are more important. And so the East really wasn't asking, and again, no, this is no criticism at all, but the East simply wasn't asking questions using investigative tools that the West had, using things like statistics and analysis and, and social scientific methods. But fundamentally, to contextualize this, over the last couple hundred, the last hundred years or so, hundreds of developmental theorists, anthropologists, developmental psychologists, structuralists, phenomenologists, have unearthed, and I, can, and I can refer you to texts where you can really get into this, have unearthed these what are called stages, structures of consciousness, which are fundamentally developmental lines that everybody more or less seems to go through. So these are cross-cultural studies. They're not just Eurocentric or even Western-centric. They're, they're world-centric. And so what people like Piaget and Kohlberg and, and Levenger and Keegan and Graves, and I mean, hundreds of these amazing people started to articulate, whether it's five, seven, 10 or 12 stages, were these kind of just developmental levels. Um, I mean, one of the most famous really is Piaget. Um, but Gene Gebser is probably, he's an anthropologist. He's one of the most famous ones. And so the briefest five would be archaic, magic, mythic, rational, and then integral. Um, you can throw, sometimes people throw pluralistic in there as well. Um, references here, just to give you, I'm thinking of the most bullet point references, um, the work of uh, Carl Beck, um, Spiral Dynamics. Uh, Ken Wilber, of course, has written a ton about this stuff, really opening up uh, with his book, Integral Psychology, where at the end of this book, he literally, for like 40 pages, has these hundred um, thinkers and their particular systems, including West, like Aurobindo. Um, I mean, this is not, again, an Eastern, just a Western thing. So even, even a few Eastern contemplatives like Aurobindo talk about it. And so Ken Wilber talks about it a ton in that book. I recommend that if you want to see, like, holy moly, I had no idea there was all this stuff there. And so... Um, you know, there, there's so much to say here. The most important thing is that the reason you, if, as a meditator, and the reason the Eastern contemplative traditions haven't discovered these is because you can't introspect these things. They're not something you look at. They're something you look through. They're blind spots. And so David Loy, um, in fact, I have it right here. He wrote this amazing book called The World is Made of Stories. And at the very beginning of this book, so this is the way he riffs on it. This is what he says. Happens to be right here. We do not see our stories as stories because we see through them. The world we experience as reality is constructed with them. And so structures are our storylines. They are our narratives. They are our histories that basically construct our um, relationship to self and basically 
are fundamentally uh, integral in terms of how we project and therefore construct the so-called world altogether. And so when we're triggered, this, this ties in beautifully to our topic about samskaras, when we're triggered by certain things, these triggers are largely brought about by these structures. So, so these samskaras also have this kind of structural component. So um, just because the topic is so big, if, that, if this person is, who asked it just happens to be here, you know, they can maybe tell me where you want to run with this. The most important thing really is to understand that if, if we don't understand what these structures of consciousness are, they have a monumental deleterious effect on the way we live our lives. These are the interpretive frameworks that, that unbeknownst to us, basically filter, edit, and, um, and therefore color contaminate virtually everything we do. And, and the way this is incredibly important for spiritual practitioners is you can have a very, very high level state realization, a full glimpse of the awakened state. Anybody can have that at any point. Unless you remain in total silence and you don't move, the minute you open your mouth or the minute you move, you have no choice but to express your realization, or in this case, it's experience. You have no choice but to express your state level experience through your structural level. Um, and this is where, pardon the French, this is where the shit hits the fan because at, these things are blind spots. We don't know the ways that we filter them. So for instance, when you're engaged and you're looking at your experience, it's Im almost impossible to say, I'm having a moral stage for thought right now. People just don't work that way. People just say, this is, this is the way the world is. This is who I am. No, this is, this is the way your stories make the world for you. So, um, you know, I recommend the work of Dustin DePerna as well. Um, Streams of Wisdom. He writes a lot about structures. Ken Wilber writes a ton about it. You know, look it up and you'll find this topic in integral theory all over the place. And again, there are literally hundreds of developmentalists from over the last hundred years that talk about it. So because the topic is just so bloody big, maybe for now I'll just let that one run unless people want you know, to follow up with it in a more specific direction. Is that okay? Just because it's so voluminous. Great. Um, here's another question. It comes from the chat and then we'll go over to the raised hands. Okay. Um, I once thought of radicals, including myself at times, as people who are, quote, created to deal with where society is dysfunctional. So in this context, I'm wondering if they have perhaps more samskaras because of that. Does this make any sense? Uh, not really. I mean, more samskaras because of their radical predispositions. Um, it's slightly opaque. So if the person who asked that question can just clarify that. Um, my first intuition is, is probably no, but again, I'm not clear what the question is actually intimating. Um, so maybe if the person who is there in the chat room can, can articulate that, somehow I can address it more readily. Otherwise, I'm just guessing a little bit. Sure. Okay, let's go over because there's quite a few hands raised. Okay. Um, we'll start with Joan. And... Hello, Andrew. Lovely Hi, Joan. How are you? Friend. I'm Good wonderful. You. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Now that I'm all, ret I'm all retreated, I'm much better than I, I was. I was starting to get very reactive and pissy last week. My samskaras were getting the better of me. Oh 
my heavens. Well, you look very soft and sweet <laughs> around the edges right now. So I think the retreat has helped. So anyway, this is a question, my dear, from okay. when I didn't get a chance to ask you. Okay. Um, I had the good fortune of having done a retreat with you for two weekends in a row, and the and the uh, virtual hangouts were oh with Bob Milner, yeah, bracketing those. So basically, I I was androified, and in that process. Um, I was really feeling, you know, Trung Rinpoche had that wonderful expression of when the collar is too tight and it doesn't fit, you know, it doesn't fit comfortably. And um, I'm not feeling that way now. And I, uh, but I want to get your, your, your take on it because what my sense is, it wasn't aggression and it wasn't, it wasn't anger. But it was, and it wasn't really irritability at the level of really feeling like I want to choose somebody's, you know, whatever. But basically, this feeling of like the shoe doesn't fit, the collar's too tight, you know, it wasn't complaint so much as it was this echo of emptiness. I guess that's the only way that I could put it. It was some kind of haunting quality that I got as a result of all your teachings, which <laughs> I consider a blessing. And and I really mean it. I really irritable, mean it. irritable blessing. <laughs> but, but but some but some quality of sort of you know. So anyway, I'd love to I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah, well, if I'm understanding you, Joan, you know, um, maybe this will help you. If if you go back, if you did the if you did the Menla program with us, yeah, I sent out that four thousand word document on, on my top ten tips for contemplation. Remember. Maybe look at, I'll say a little bit more now, but maybe go back and look at, I can't remember which number it was, um, one of the later stages for tips of contemplation, where I talk about the, the kind of irritability component behind deep spiritual work. Because if, if I'm sussing you out properly, what, what I'm landing with here is that, you know, um, Part of us, when we look at, again, and this is another reason it's really helpful to look at contributions from the West in terms of like spectrums of identity, spectrums of consciousness, that, that we don't exist as one kind of locus of identity at one developmental level. And this is the other, this ties into also to structures. Structures aren't these reified, ossified, articulate things that we're trapped in. They're more like probability waves. And in a certain sense, what in our own spectrum of identity right here and now, we recapitulate certain aspects of structural evolution in terms of the bandwidth of identity that we manifest in. And by that, what I mean is part of us, part of you wants to hear the Dharma, the truth, because it's the truth. That's the more kind of ultraviolet evolved aspect. But then because we do exist on a spectrum, there's this kind of infrared devolutionary aspect, you know, the more selfish, the more aggressive, the more um, contracted aspect of our being. And so what happens is, is we go along the path, I have definitely noticed this, is sometimes there's a kind of a conflict of interest issue going on, where part of you really wants to wake up. And then a, a big part of you just doesn't want anything to do with it. And so you can sometimes register this as feelings of almost like um, bipolar, where you know sometimes you're just, I, no, I notice this in my own experience, especially when I'm working with really deep teachings. Like the first time I was introduced to the teachings on emptiness. I mean, it was an amazing, um, I guess a couple of years actually, where I became a kind of bipolar. You know, I just, I couldn't get enough of it. So it was unbelievable. I wanted more, more, more. 
And then it was like I couldn't get away from it fast enough. I didn't want anything to do with it. And so the irritability thing um, and the annoyance thing, and sometimes even deeper, the fear, sometimes the, pa the panic, yeah. armed with the right view, these can be really good indicators because the teachings are getting under your skin. And they're going to reveal to you that fundamentally there's nothing under your skin. And that's really irritating. <laughs> you know, it's like Trungpa Rinpoche gave this talk. I wasn't there. Uh, maybe somebody, Joseph or somebody may have been there. I, I think it was in Chicago. It's a, a famous talk where he was giving this, this um, if I remember it properly, to a bunch of academics at the university and all that. And he was in his, one of his particularly outrageous radical spaces when he, he just got into this whole riff about, you know, you don't exist. And all the academics were being polite and saying, well, do you mean, do you mean this by this? You know, they're trying to like sugarcoat it. And no, he just came back every time over and he goes, no, I'm saying you don't exist. That's really irritating. I mean, that is extremely irritating. And so um, that could be a really good marker that something is starting to work on you because, you know, real spiritual practice is not window shopping. That's new age. Real spiritual uh, practice is, is a detox. It's a blast furnace. And so um, understanding, you know, why it's that way, why the irritability is there, why at e even deeper levels the fear, the panic is there, will therefore really help you understand it and realize, hey, this isn't something to run from. This is something to go into. Um, because usually what happens is these are just ego's defense mechanisms coming in. The flamethrowers and the barbed wire and the booby traps are all coming out the closer you get to the truth. Because on one level, ego realizes, you know, this is a death threat to the ego. And it will, it will kick and scream and, and, you know, come up with all kinds of excuses. I don't have time for this. I'm too stupid. I'm too worthless. I'm too whatever. Um, and if you understand that, then you realize, hey, this stuff is really starting to work on me. You know, again, the path is not about feeling good unless you're talking about basic goodness. The path is about getting real. And getting real means getting rid of the ego or getting rid of your, you know, inappropriate relationship to an illusion. So maybe, is that what you're talking about? It really resonates. Thank you, dear. Yeah, because if I irritate you, I want to irritate you oh, properly. Oh, you, you, you're just like, you're like Trunk Rinpoche. You have, you've, you've gotten, you've learned from the master. So that's wonderful. I'm a, mas I'm a master irritator. I love it. I love it. <laughs> master irritator. Good question, dear. Nice to see you. You too. Bye. You too, bye. All right. Uh, next up. Uh, Judith and Judith, you will have the audio in just a second. Time for a one breath meditation session. Whenever there's a gap, okay, you should have. <laughs> Is it ready? Yeah. yeah. Hi. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, I'm good. Andrew, I came across this um, poem by Jane Wellwood um, called The Dakini Speaks. Have you heard of it? Did you say John Wellwood? No, Jane Wellwood. I think she's oh. married to John Wellwood. Yes, no, I don't know that one. I don't it's know an that incredible, one. and it's short, and it, I think it encapsulates everything that you're saying. Oh, read it, read it. Okay, <clears throat> my friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or, if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. 
Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully, like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed, as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she's only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. She is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. Awesome. What's the name of that poem? That's beautiful. The Dakini Speaks. When I got that, it was Uh, like, came over my phone and it was like, oh my God, it was like that got under my skin. Yeah, no kidding, huh? Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I I never met her. I I mean, I I, I knew John. I actually took some courses with him. Um, We did a few things online together and we lost him, you know, a little over a year ago. And it was, he's a major uh, um, kind of psychologist, spiritual. teacher, um, high, high order. I'm sure you know his work. I'm not that familiar with, with Jane's stuff, but I'm a huge fan of, of the work of John Wellwood. So yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Andrew, can I ask one quick question? Sure. About, you mentioned about devouring. Devouring right. what... So in, in a situation, say, like the COVID-19, does it mean to devour, to think about the worst scenarios and lean into it? What, what do you actually mean by devour? Yes, yes, exactly. So devour is, um, this again is, is a Sanskrit word, alamgrasa, which um, it's basically, in my opinion, this is authentic consumerism, <laughs> um. <laughs> of which everything else is just a, a, a substitute gratification, which is why you know, secondary consumerisms never work. So what you want to consume, what you want to devour is experience itself. So this literally means having the wherewithal, having the capacity to ingest, digest, metabolize, and then release anything that happens. And so it's, it's, it's really just that, having the courage to say yes um, to even really bitter tastes, to really bitter unwanted experience, to have a mind and heart that's so open that it can accommodate anything. And therefore what you do is, is you devour, you consume um, your experience. And, it, and it's like uh, Trungpa Rinpoche says in the Sadhana of Mahamudra then, good and bad, happy and sad, all thoughts vanish into emptiness like the imprint of a bird in the sky. In other words, no matter what happens, happy and sad, good or bad, no imprint is left like a bird in the sky, no karma is left, no samskaras are created, no residue if you cremate the experience when you live it. And so one really brutal example of this is grief and things with like complicated grief. You know, when you have a loss, and I've had this experience, you have a loss and you're not quite able to process it because it's just, it's, you know, literally you just can't take, I can't consume any more experience. Have you noticed that? Like when a loved one dies, after a while it's like, I just can't, I cannot, 
digest any more experience. I'm so full, I just can't even deal with this anymore. And so therefore, grief becomes the challenge that it is. And so using that as, a, as an example, if a particular unwanted experience, in this case loss, isn't um, fully properly digested, metabolized, and processed, and then released, then normal grief becomes complicated grief. And fundamentally, everything for us is complicated whatever, because we haven't fully experienced and digested our previous histories. Um, and so therefore, to devour our experience is to have a mind and a heart so big that we're open to whatever happens, even really unwanted experience. Now, this does not in any way, the near enemy of this is acquiescence and apathy and saying, oh, yeah, whatever. No, that's not what we're saying. Doesn't mean you just accept it, like you know, slap, slap the other, turn the other cheek. That's not what we're saying. It, it's it's saying just be, live your experience not on a pilot light level, live it on with the gas turned on, and then what happens is again, it's kind of rugged terminology, but then you cremate your experience as you live it, you burn it, you live it fully, fully, and then it doesn't leave a residue, and this is what the great masters are capable of doing. You know, and this is one reason we're so ineffably attracted to them because they live with a type of ferocity, with the, with the light of awareness um, so fully on that they, they just don't live like the rest of us. And, and in a certain sense, they live really purely, um, not in a conventional sense of puritanical. I mean, they live cleanly because they will experience whatever happens and they're just going to fry it when they experience it. And then they just go on with it. See, then there's no history. There's no stickiness. We're just super sticky people. That's just what ego does. Ego sticks to everything. And the stickiness is what creates these samskaras. And so, you know, um, yeah, something like that. We just want to open, open, open so we can uh, experience everything fully, allowing your body, because your body always knows how to deal with this, using your body as the crucible for this kind of devouring process, which again, may not always feel good from ego's perspective. But who, like in the contract um, from uh, Jane Wellwood, who said life is supposed to feel good? Show me where that's, where, where does that, where's that contract in this clause? Where does that show up? <laughs> it doesn't. That's just ego's rested way of relating to things, which is, you know, what, what just doesn't eventually work. So something yeah. like that. Thanks, Andrew. That's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, the poem is beautiful. I'm gonna definitely check it out. Thanks for sharing that, dear. Great. All right. Um, next, Timothy will have the audio. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Tim. Um, well, I have a, 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 just a couple of uh, lucid dreaming, dream yoga questions uh, I've been wondering about. Uh, sometimes when I wake up in the middle of the night, uh, you know, I like to do some practice. I usually do shamatha vipassana. Okay. Uh, or some three roots practice. Uh, and I, it just got me wondering if there's any particular deity practices that are associated with dream yoga. Um, I mean, I know that, you know, people have different lineages and everything. I've had a lot of different empowerments, uh, you know, repertoire of things I could draw from, but uh, I just wonder if some are better than others. Uh, uh, not in the Buddhist tradition that I'm aware of, and I have actually asked this question myself of, of masters, because I'm wondering is, oh, is there like a dream yoga deity? Is there a dream yoga mantra? And um, not in this tradition. There, there are certain mantras that Dr. Nida talks about that 
um, I can share with you. It, um, but in the Bund tradition, there is a deity um, and there is a mantra and everything associated with, but, but in the kind of classic Tibetan Buddhist scheme, at least that I am not aware of, and I've, again, I've asked some Rinpoche's on this, there isn't one. Um, and on one level, you know, I'm trying to think like what might be, uh, I mean, they're all at one level, as you know, like I playfully say, they're all cross-dressers, right? At a certain yeah. level, they're, they're all the same, but they have different kind of qualities and characteristics. And so on one level, you could say, I mean, my guy is Manjushri, um, or if, if you are like the feminine energy of things, you know, Prajnaparamita. And so if you're connected to those mantras and those deities, those are particularly helpful with the dream yoga thing because both of those um, archetypal energies are associated with kind of cutting through illusion um, and heading towards the empty nature of things. And that's what dream yoga is fundamentally all about and arguably all of Buddhism really, um, is cutting through the, the uh, facade of reified reality, um, cutting through appearances, which is what lucidity actually does. Lucidity cuts through the appearance that, well, this is just a dream. Um, you start to see it for what it is. So my go-to's, um, Manjushri is my go-to and his mantra, you know, Omada Patanadi, that's my go-to. But if you want to look at uh, the Bun tradition, Tenzin Wangyal riffs about it in his book, Tibetan Yogas of Dream and Sleep. I can't remember her name, but there's a female Dakini associated with that tradition. And then Dr. Nida, who's a, uh, um, a, a really lovely master, I took a course with him not that long ago. He lives in Italy. He has some specific uh, kind of dream yoga mantras. I don't have them I don't use them, um, so I don't have them from memory, but I might be able to dig them up and share them with you next time. But Yeah, okay, well, thanks. Yeah, that's, that's sort of what I thought. Another question that's related to this I was wondering about is, are there any um, uh, guided meditations that one might listen to when you're falling asleep to help you, uh, to help attain lucid dreaming? Uh, I mean, I like to listen, you know, I like to listen to something when I'm falling asleep. And it just occurred to me. Right. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting question. Um, again, not that I'm aware of. Maybe, maybe you should come up with one. Um, nothing comes to mind. You know, I mean, there are all kinds of relaxation type things, and, and they're all great. But, you know, things that actually are kind of like guided meditations for inducing lucidity, I'm not aware of any. Um, but that's actually an interesting statement. It, it wouldn't be a terribly difficult thing to do to create a kind of guided descent type meditation, which really could be done by adapting the, the Eightfold Dissolution of the Death and Dying process. I mean, honestly, mm -hmm. um, because, even, because even Padmasambhava has contemplations where he associates very directly the stages of sleep with the stages of death. And so because, you know, falling asleep is a concordant experience of dying. And so that's an interesting statement. Um, it wouldn't be terribly difficult to kind of, and I know exactly a couple contemplations of, of Guru Rinpoche immediately come to mind where you could just do a very slow kind of guided visualization thing. And then maybe even, you know, you, you got me thinking here a little bit, my friend, um, where you could even transition to something associated with a, the Lotus Descent visualization. Uh -huh. So maybe, maybe this is something we can do together and become rich and famous, but um, <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I've noticed that sometimes when I fall asleep with, I have some, some earphones that, 
that are uh, that actually not, they're not earbuds. They're actually made for going to right. sleep. And people, you know, and I'll be listening to something, and then in the dream there'll be somebody talking, saying the words to me, and they won't shut up, you know. And I go, come on, let me let me interrupt you, you know. And they won't shut up. <laughs> and then I realize, oh, it's because I have these earphones on. You know? That's too funny. That's really too funny. So if there's somebody listening and can write in the chat column, if you know of something like this, let us know. I can't think of anything, but it, it's a good idea, Timothy, and it wouldn't be a bad, um, uh, you know, wouldn't be a difficult thing to kind of throw together. So yeah. stay tuned. Maybe I'll be yeah. able to add that to my lemonade stand. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Yeah. See you, bud. Don't you mean margarita truck, Andrew? Margarita truck? Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. All right. Um, next for the audio is Kristen. Hi there. Uh, it's Kirsten, by the way. Um, that's okay. Uh, I want to say thank you for uh, making yourself available. It's just been great to participate here. I took your Bardo, uh, Navigating Bardo's class, and did the also the two weekends with um, with uh, Bob Thurman. Thank you. And have, at your enthusiastic recommendation, read In Love with the World. And now there's a small book club in Seattle. Isn't that the best? Studying the book. Yeah, it's just great. Like it's just great. Yeah. yeah. And uh, then my second book was a comment you made about Lincoln and the Bardo. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> That's a wild book. it is a wild book. I kind of felt like when I started reading it that I needed to read it and absorb it as if it were a dream. So I, because I couldn't follow all the things and I just thought I, I was curious about sort of the porousness of the three bardos, the bardo of dying and the bardo of dharmata and becoming, they're sort of all meshed in on some level in that. And I, I just wanted to get a comment from you on it since I just finished it. Sure. So I'm not sure the co the comment on what exactly. Well, what's it about? I mean, what is your feeling about what it's about? Because what is your what is George? Well, I'm, what what is I'm, what is Lincoln and the Bardo about? Yeah. Oh, I, oh your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm not gonna, okay. I'm not going to give you any uncertainty. No, you're, you know, you're looking for certainty in the world of the Bardos. I, I think it would be somehow disingenuous for me to give you some ground on this one. You know, I think it's better to, to that's part of, I, I don't even want to say this because it's, it's also somewhat a performative contradiction. I mean, it's, it's Bardo-like by design and, and it's basically pulling the rug out from under you going like WTF. And so what is it like to be in that space? What is that like? <laughs> Well, I just felt like I was dreaming. There you go. There you and go. So I was watching the dream. There you go. There you go. Um, That's what it's about. I, and I thought how marvelous that somebody could create something with all these characters. Right? Yeah, this book, this book is radical and, and, and a lot of people just didn't like it. You know, this, it's an experimental novel and a number of people just thought it was gibberish. Um, but, you know, it's, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to do spoiler revelations with people who haven't read it, but um, it's definitely a Bardo novel, an experimental novel. <laughs> okay, well, that, that was my primary question. I just thought, am I missing something here? Um, I'm just having to read this as a dream. 
And yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, you know, speaking of that, uh, Sonia Rinpoche once said, I, I interviewed Sonia Rinpoche. I love this guy. He's Mingyur Rinpoche's brother. These, these two guys are like the ultimate tag team, I tell you. Mm -hmm. And I asked him once, um, what did he say? I said, Rinpoche, I said, what, are, what, would, what would you recommend? Like, like, what are the best books on the Bardos? And he said something really interesting. He said, yes, it's important to read about the Bardos and learn about the Bardos. Yes, yes, yes. But he said, it's, it's almost more important to learn about the mood of the Bardos. And I thought that was like, what kind of a statement is that? I mean, and then, and then of course I said, what do you mean by the mood? What, what is the mood of the Bardos? And he said, illusion, illusion. And so, the, you know, that book just creates this illusion. Yeah. That's the mood of the Bardo. Yeah, 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 that, that's very, very true, very true. Thank but, you. Yeah, most welcome. You're reading some good stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. All right. Uh, next up, Daryl and Laura. We'll have the audio. Just a second here. Sometimes it takes a second. There it goes. It's a perfect time for one breath meditation. <laughs> Sometimes it has to be short breath. Okay. Hi. Um, hi, it's been a long time, Andrew. My husband and I have taken a class with you in Los Angeles years ago, and he's continued to take classes. But I, I have to do this um, to ask you that. Okay. Tell you, a couple of days when I was practicing, a couple of days ago when I was practicing, um, it came to me that our, our country's situation being in the US right now is that we have these two opposite sides that are bitterly unable to understand each other. And at some point it just came through to me that it's like myself. If there's the part of myself that wants to be expanded and open and curious about everything and change the world and these other part of myself that does not want to do that at all, wants to sleep, right. you know? And I think that's what is, is happening yeah. globally and culturally. So if you have any ideas about how to get these two sides to, um, because both of us, both sides are in one hand, right? Yeah what we have to embrace so how can we do that as a culture right yeah education so this is this is terrific you know what you're saying is is just spot on on a number of fronts you know the the society is a composed of the individual the individual is a product of society so we have this kind of bootstrap bi-directional process going by where fundamentally what you see on the social level is is in fact reiterated um, on, on a personal individual level, which is why we can use an understanding of our own mind, our own heart, to fundamentally understand the minds and hearts. And therefore, eventually, um, if we understand things like structures, and that's what I'm gonna talk in a second, uh, the storylines of, of everybody. And so that's why, I mean, what you're saying, I couldn't agree more with you. It's, it's a beautiful 
summation, and also it ties in beautifully to the importance of understanding structures. Because these culture wars are structure wars. They're, and, and, you know, people have their storylines. Um, and if you want to know, this is, this is the really interesting thing about structures. Really interesting thing about structures. Because on one level, structures are deep, unconscious processes. On another level, the structures actually are projected onto what we know as the world itself. And this is the ultimate kicker. So people say, oh, well, where, where, how can I find these structures? Where are these structures? Well, on one level, they're hiding in plain sight. Your structures are your world. And so people will fight, die, kill for their worlds. Um, and these, th there isn't one world out there. This world is plastic. This world is dreamlike, it's empty. And so we are the ones that freeze frame this thing um, based on the stories we tell ourselves. And so culture wars are structure wars. And that's why understanding structures are super important because otherwise we will never listen to each other. There will never be any um, open, openness and tolerance and accommodation for others because we don't understand the, the malleable nature of experience. We all have our versions that this is just the way it is. That's another archetypal blind spot, by the way. Um, Sam Keen wrote about this decades ago. Whenever you have the urge to bang your fist on the table or whatever analog, fire a, a nuclear warhead in defense of it and say, damn it, this is just the way it is, then you know you're working up against the structure working up against a belief system of projection because it's not the way it is it's the way your structures say it is and so the only way really is is education is um understanding <clears throat> is really developing a, a wider lens of just the the complex nature of the human condition and that people just have different ways of, of looking at the world that in fact creates their very sense of world and until we know that we're going to be fighting and killing each other because our view is the only view. Um, and I, I don't know of any other way to do it. I really don't. Um, you know, the implementation strategies, this is a massive topic for really engaged spirituality is how to actually change the world by making this better known. You know, on one level, we just do the very best we can. We start with ourselves and then maybe we do our best to raise our voices and to, and to bring you know, these levels of education to others so that um, maybe eventually we'll land. But, you know, there are a lot of people that, just like with uh, the earlier question, there's a lot of people that, that don't want to look. They don't want to know. Ego lives in proverbial ignorance, the proverbial head in the sand, and, and it doesn't want to be challenged. It doesn't want to have its belief structures because it creates the sense of solidity that is the very definition of ego itself. And so most people don't want to destabilize, decentralize, to, to create and you know, to fundamentally challenge their worldviews because it's a fundamental challenge to their very sense of self. And so these are deep and practical issues and really challenging to work with. So this is why some of the most intelligent, sophisticated thinkers are, are working like, what are, what's the essence of transformation? How do we really educate? How do we really grow? Um, and whatever we can do to do that, that's the way that's done. But whatever that means is, you know, that's a huge question. Yeah, Joe. Hi. I want to uh, express my incredible appreciation for you and how you basically blew me open this morning with this discussion on uh, 
Well, for me, it has to do with abandonment. It's a, it's a structure. It's a structure that I've had to deal with it. And, and like, when I fall into that space, that big gap between I come out and I'm all excited and I want to express, and the more I attempt to express, the more I, I'm, I'm, I'm caught into this feeling that, that I cannot express it. And I feel abandoned by that limitation. What, what, say more by that. What do you mean? What do you mean abandoned by the ability to simply express it? I get triggered. It takes me all the way back to childhood when I was like I was abandoned by my parents or my mother or whatever. And then I come back up, and then I feel like the whole world is abandoning me. And that's a, that's a particular structure, a projection that man, you just something triggered you me in in what you were saying this morning. And like like how do you how do you rectify that? In terms of of the message, the message that you that you have to share with the world, and at the same time you go, we get it. <laughs> yeah, this this stuff this stuff, Daryl, is this stuff is fiercely important, and it goes it goes phenomenally deep. I mean, we will fundamentally, and thank you for sharing that that heartfelt offering. The vast majority of this, this is what it means to be asleep. This is why the Buddha is the awakened one. The vast majority of the world, and, and, and the more you realize it, the more gut-wrenching and painful it is, the vast majority of the human condition spends the entirety of their lives operating completely unbeknownst to them out of these fundamental processes, literally spending an entire life working with avoidance issues that go back to ground zero, literally working with neuroses or issues, family issues of origin, going back to ground zero, we spend our entire lives operating out of these stances. And so therefore you get some sense, and this again, one reason why it's helpful to know all this, why it is that there aren't so many so-called enlightened people running around, because it is a very deep running psychological, spiritual issue supported by unconscious social, cultural constructs that basically the forces of the dark side are, are unbelievable, but it doesn't mean they're insurmountable. It means they, these forces can be brought to the light of awareness through teachings and practices like this. And then the really gritty hard work to go in there and work with this stuff. And unfortunately, the older we get, you know, the more people tend to just ossify into their comfort plans and the more they, 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 their cultures and their structures just become more worth defending. And people, as we go old, most people don't really want to step out of the bubble bath and, and do the work that's required to wake up. And so then that's why samsara is endless, right? So when the traditions say we've been recycling through the samsara condition for endless lifetimes, have you ever thought about how long endless is? Endless is a really long time. Now you get some sense that this is not hyperbolic. This is endless. And do you think it's ever going to stop? It's, this is physics. This is mechanics. This is causality. It's never, oh, I love this. This is like fire and brimstone shit. This is great. This is where I get to stand on the pulpit and, and hammer down the truth. <laughs> this is never going to stop until we wake up to the processes and, and then start to transform them. This is why samsara is endless and and uh, to me it, this stuff is, is jaw-droppingly important um it's it's the only game in town i mean otherwise everything you do is an absolute complete substitute driven by very sophisticated avoidance strategies designed 
to in fact avoid these hard truths that really dictate the entirety of our so-called conscious lives. So it's, it's not easy, but again, it's the only game in town as far as I can tell. Thank you so much. Yeah, very welcome. Thanks for sharing that. Bye, you guys. All right. Um, next will be David, followed by Ted. Okay. Um, Andrew, I have uh, hey. hi there. <laughs> I have a couple of uh, dream questions for you. Okay. Um, the, this thing, first off, is is it possible to have uh, dreams that appear to be lucid that are not, and is it possible to have lucid dreams that you've completely forgotten by the time you wake up? Um, and I keep having these feelings because when I wake up, I usually just wake up, snap, and, and it's 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 off. Um, and I keep feeling like, yeah, yeah, I am doing a little bit of lucid dreaming, but I also just had another dream. Um, on the morning of my birthday, I was really contemplating, what do I really want? And I had a dream that I was lying in bed, trying not to wake up because I was dreaming that something really pleasant was there. I was that I was lying beside this beautiful woman that I totally love and she loved me. And I didn't want to risk waking up because it might be a dream. Uh, <laughs> But I, I kind awesome. of <laughs> Oh, I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> and then I woke up and and I, I remembered that dream. <laughs> but I was kind of lucid and kind of not. <laughs> yeah, no. <clears throat> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah. So to to come back to your first two opening questions. Second one first. <laughs> Yes, you, you can have lucid dreams and not remember them. Um, how do you, it's almost like, well, how do you know that if you can't remember them? Well, sometimes people will, will and I've, I've heard this on a number of times in my programs, um, people will come up to me and, and say, you know, oh, that just triggered, you know, three days ago, I just remembered three nights ago, I had this lucid dream, I totally forgot. And you just said something that completely triggered into my lucid dream. So generally, most lucid dreams tend to be remembered um, because they carry a little bit more of a charge. They're a little bit, you know, obviously, they're lucid in both senses. They're, they're lucid in the sense, the technical sense that you're aware of the fact that you're dreaming. But most lucid dreams are also lucid in the, in the more provisional sense where they just tend to be more clear. So generally, and again, how do you know for sure? I don't know, because if you don't remember something, how do you know you don't remember, right? So. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, here's another example I got from this. Um, there, I did a, another program a number of years ago, and, and I was mentioning something to this effect. And a, a gal came up to me during the break, and she said, "You know, you said something, said something that really triggered an aha moment for me um, when I was talking about how you can actually increase proficiencies and talents, you know, through your practice of dreaming." And she said, "You know, I've been mysteriously kind of getting better." at this kind of daytime activity and I'm not practicing it. I'm not doing it during the day. And she said, what you said triggered the memory that I, I think I'm actually doing this in my lucid dreams. And so that was a really interesting comment. You know, first of all, she wasn't remembering them and she was yet still reaping the benefits. And the fact that it was somewhat supportive of what the tradition says that you in fact can develop proficiency in daytime activities from what you do in the dreaming state. 
The first question was, um, yes, lucidity, in, again, in the technical sense of awareness of the dream, exists across a spectrum. It's not a one size fits all. Sometimes you're like barely lucid. You think you're awake to the dream, but you're not quite totally sure. Or you have moments of lucidity and then you kind of fall into non-lucidity. You kind of flicker back and forth. So you have those types of you know, semi-partial lucid dreams all the way to the other end, which would be hyper-lucid dreams, right? Um, where the dreams are actually more real than this. And so somewhere on that spectrum is this vast spectrum of lucidity or awareness itself. And so um, maybe that helps, you know, that, that it's, it's mm -hmm. a gradation. Lucidity occurs from really super short uh, dreamlets to dreams that last over an hour to barely lucid, flickering in and out. I think I'm there. This often happens in hypnagogic, hypnopompic states, you know, liminal states. You're not, you're not fully there. You're not fully awake. You're kind of flickering in and out. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's this kind of gamut, this spectrum of both duration and actually lucidity itself, for sure. So I have one more okay. uh, for you. And I hope it's a, a, a welcome challenge. Okay. Because uh, now, now recently the, the Dalai Lama did something that people had said couldn't be done. He did a, um, an Abhisheka and then said that. that. Yeah. And people who weren't there but we're online. Right, 150,000 people. Yeah. We totally get it. And then even people who got the recording somehow could then um, totally get the Abhisheka. That right. was, a, was a general Abhisheka. I understand it wasn't uh, one for practice-oriented of, you know, now you're a Vajragini or something like that. But still, still, he did something that, that you keep hearing, oh, it's impossible to do something remote like that. But right. the Dalai did it. And he did it for reasons of compassion. Sure. Now, our, in, our, uh, uh, in our world, I think traveling less and flying less um, reduces our, our load on us, our world. And there's a, a lot of unrest. Uh, if there was a gathering in the United States that I couldn't go down there from Canada. Right. Um, um, but um, you uh, had said that uh, uh, the, the best way to, to really get deeper into to dream yoga would be to go to one of a, uh, a retreat. So how about, can you possibly come up with ways to do a dream yoga retreat online? And then that way, maybe I can actually attend it. That's not a bad idea. You know, that's not a bad idea, David. And, and, and because of what's happening with limitations, you know, I'm, I've, I basically canceled and had to cancel every program until we have a vaccine. And so that includes, you know, I had a number of dream yoga stuff coming up. So that's, that's an interesting thought, my friend. All I can do is say, <laughs> stay tuned, because I think it's a really good idea. Um, and I think it is implementable. So um, yeah. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll actually do it. We usually do this live thing every year at Sedona that may or may not happen because of the virus. If it doesn't happen in, in, at the physical location, we're definitely gonna do something online. So stay tuned. Well, maybe you can do two tracks, right? What do you mean? What's, what would be the two tracks? One track would be people who came um, and, and the other track would be people who didn't come. Oh, I see. So you mean actually, actually like um, do it, stream it, where you're saying doing a live stream kind of thing? Um, yes, okay. are, are zooming and with, but other people who can't, 
come, set up the container, be um, really figure out how to, to do this. Because when, for instance, like Sedona thing, you know, I looked at the prices. Right. And all the, come down and visit my mother in Arizona. I was born in Arizona. Huh? Uh, um, you know, it's way out of the price range right. of everyone who's not um, privileged in, right. in the current. So if you're, you know, you're, you're black, you're Chicano, or you're gay, right. or and are on and on and on and on, right? Yes. This, this is, uh, uh, it's, it's privileged. I hear um, you. I hear and you. we can say it's racist, sexist, on and on and on, using the negative thing. But, right. but uh, this is a challenge to, you, yeah. you, you've been really good here. And how can you really share it with everyone? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm all ears. I, 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 I'm really hearing you, my friend. And I do think it's one of the, you know, obstacles or opportunities in disguise. And I really do think it's one of the, of the opportunities with the virus thing. It's completely transformed the potentiality for these sorts of things. And, and I, I completely agree with you that um, making this material more available, more affordable, for people who can't attend some of these things, because some of these, you know, like for instance, Sedona is pricey because the resort is pricey, right? Um, yes. But that's no excuse. You know, the idea, what you're saying is, is really the point, that opening it up, making it more available to people from not just, you know, in America, from around the world with yes. a streaming type service, I, I completely agree with you. And I, I honestly think it's the way I'm going to be presenting in the future because um, we want to be as inclusive and, and accessible as we possibly can. And so that's one way to do it. So your point is extremely well taken. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> See you in my dreams. Take care, <laughs> yeah, you bet, or your nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we probably got time for one or two more, maybe. Okay, great. So we have uh, Ted, we'll have the audio next. Ted from TED Talks. Ted from Ted Reed. TED Talks. Yep, Ted talks a lot. <laughs> Just to back up before my question, David's comment, um, and under full disclosure, I am a privileged white older male. Yeah, no kidding. Huh? Um, and so that's full disclosure. And I was unable, I was fortunate enough to attend your Bardo in uh, Shambhala Mountain Center last summer. August. And I really would love to have gone to Menlo to do that. And so I added up the cost. This is pre-virus and so on. And I added up the cost. And by the time you fly there, you get room and board, you get the retreat and so on. It was going to cost about $2,700. Right. And a couple days travel on either end and so on. And then when I learned that it was going to be online, uh, for less than $400, I jumped all over it. Now, yeah. I, mean, I still appreciate having done many retreats with other people. I uh, like that. But I can honestly say that I really benefited cool. uh, from that and online. Good feedback. But, but my question um, is that, again, being a privileged white male living in the mountains of Colorado, I have trouble relating with the r racism that is going on in this country. You know, I, I watch the news on occasion, I watch Colbert, I watch Trevor Noah and so on. And it almost gets to the point of 
yeah, but I don't, I, I don't feel it. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I, that really changed that was in the retreat when Professor Thurman did the meditation of eight minutes and 46 seconds with hands up. Um, and, you know, and that was, a, that was a practice that I have not only done again, but I've shared with other people. And then the other day I had another one that gave me more of a sense of this. I was just driving into town down a hill and all of a sudden the sirens or the lights are behind me and the cops pulling me over and so on. And while he was coming to the car, I thought, what would it be like if I were a black man okay. in this situation? <clears throat> so while he was coming, and I was thinking about that, I got my license, I got my uh, registration, I got my insurance card, and how are you, officer? Here's the information you need. And he said, you know, you were doing 39 in a 25, and we've had a lot of complaints and so on. And so he went back in, he checked my records and so on, and he came back and he said, I'm only giving you a ticket for one to four miles over the speed limit so that it won't go on your record, and it's only $50 fine instead of a $200 fine. And so that made me, that, that gave me a sense of how privileged I am. But my question is for you is, are there practical ways that we can better emphasize or uh, empathize mm -hmm. with the, the plight? In other words, we, we, in, in Rifle, Colorado, we don't have, you know, we don't have, I think we have maybe five or six black families. We've got a lot of rednecks that walk around with their, you know, M16s and so on. But, um, you know, and the Latino population is very, and I don't have any, I don't register any sense of prejudice yeah. towards Latinos because I've lived in Mexico and so on. But how are, are there specific yep. practices? Yep, there are. Yep. So three things. Um, one is, you know, um, a little bit more abstract and then very practical. Tonglen, <clears throat> obviously on one level. Right. Really, really working with Tonglen. Um, to the very best of your ability, bringing to mind, you know, George Floyd or whoever. That's one practice. Um, the second thing, a little bit more technical, but it has a tremendous amount of potential. It, again, it may not be readily available um, for people like you and I for a while, but it's some really interesting work with virtual reality in terms of virtual embodiment, where, you know, they're creating programs where, where you literally... Um, put on haptic wear, um, you put on the, the, the headset, and then you, this is also a really, I, I actually talked in person with Ken Wilbur about this as a way to actually help people step into the shoes of other people at different structural levels of development, where with these virtual embodiment systems, um, in fact, they're using it at the UN now, they, they're, all, they're starting to do some really interesting things where they're putting politicians in, in, in the position of Syrian refugees, for instance. And, and really, because virtual reality is so bloody real, you can create environments that, that are um, profoundly transformative. It's a little bit like you know, a visualization practice on steroids where you, know, you, you can see yourself as a black person. And again, it's not the same thing, but it's, it's close. I, I haven't done it, but I've heard some really interesting data about it. 
The other one that may be a little bit more applicable is volunteer in these communities. Um, put your money where your mouth is. And if you have, you know, talk to like Myra who, who attends often, she's an immigration lawyer. She works day to day with Hispanic communities and, and just the absolute network of nightmares they have to go through. Volunteer in the communities that are struggling. Volunteer in a Latino organization, in a, in, in a, a black organization, whatever. Get in the mix with people different than you, talk to them, listen to their stories, see what it's like to be in their shoes. Um, that sort of thing is, is really, really helpful because it will get us out of our Western privileged, sterile um, sanctuaries where we're actually not afraid to get in the mix and do the dirty work. And especially when you do it as a volunteer because then you're not getting anything out of it, you're offering. That's, that's really powerful stuff. And so I would suspect that if you really looked you would be able to find something in your area where that might be possible, where you can actually get in at that level and, and start to see, you know, listen to their stories, story their existence. You know, the world is made of stories. We're made of stories. People are made of stories. And while history, their stories are a nightmare from which we're trying to awake, to really understand other people, you have to understand their stories. You have to understand their structures. And one way to do that is to enter their narratives, to enter their worldview, to, to get in the grit. Um, and this is one reason, you know, when I do more, my work overseas and go to developing countries, part of it is, is in fact to keep, to get me out of my sterile intellectual ivy tower, because otherwise the books I uh, study, the spirituality I work with can very easily predispose you to an ivy tower exceptionalism, escapism and elitism there's a lot of danger to the privilege of this kind of spiritual stuff. And so for me, it, you know, it, it's volunteering on those capacities, getting into the mix, working in third world countries in Africa or Asia, whatever, and just realizing that there are a whole lot of people that have really different stories than me and have really different lives. So I think somewhere along those lines said, you can find something super practical that I think can really help you understand because otherwise you are exactly right. My friend, you know, we have, we have no idea. We just have no idea. Um, and this is one way that maybe we can get an idea. So something like that. Yeah, no, I mean, that's very helpful. And, uh, you know, I do do a lot of volunteering, but it's not in the interracial area. I'd recommend it, my friend. <clears throat> really, it's powerful stuff. Just don't, you know, don't be afraid to get in the trenches, so to speak. That's one way to do it. So yeah. Good, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Those are people, um, Andy, if there's still some people online with cues, with questions, maybe remember, write those names down, keep your hands up, and we'll have them at the front of the line next week. But I do try to limit these things to an hour and a half, and we're a little bit past that. So next week, we'll, we'll do this again. Um, and if Andy can keep track of people who still may be waiting, I want to honor everybody who asks a question. But great to be back with you all. Um, I kind of missed the whole gang. It's fun to be back in the mix again. Appreciate the good offerings, comments, questions, and take care of yourselves. We'll see you next week, okay? Bye.